All right, welcome everyone to another episode of The Critic Corner, the episode in the works since even before the relaunch of the show. Travis, buddy, how you doing? Good, good to be here. Ready for this one? Absolutely, let's get into it. I know, we, we, we put off so many things. It's like we rehearsed this thing every time we meet up, but there's just no camera. We, we, <laughs> we've pre-gamed for this for about six months. At least, at least. Oh man, and because of that, we got a little little bit in the background here. We got Elia Goldenthal and crew providing some background ambience. So I am gonna be co-pilot on this one. You're taking point, so from here, I got nothing. It's all you. <laughs> okay. Well, lucky for you. Uh <laughs> Being a rookie podcaster here, I made some uh, made some notes and drew myself a roadmap for our uh, for our discussion here. So uh, I thought and I just, just to, and just to be clear, this is going to be less than four hours long, right? <laughs> well, you're <laughs> editing it, so I'll go as long as you feel comfortable. You know, if you want to spend all week trying to trim this down to to podcast length, uh, I will let you because you know how you know how we go if we, if we just start talking. This won't end. So all right, um, so I'll, I'll be the I'll be the guardrails. Go for <laughs> Okay, so uh, first of all, just I think I just wanted to kick off talking about uh, the status of the movie. Uh, it came out in 1995, uh, was a modest hit when it came out, made, uh, I think, about $70 million, which this is back in 1995 when $70 million was still $70 million dollars before uh, yeah. you know you have to remember uh this is this is a different time we're, we're, we're hitting a hundred million dollars was a big deal so so it was a modest success um it made its money back but it wasn't a blockbuster hit or anything like that yeah. and it was interesting in in prep for this pro, uh, podcast i did look back at some older reviews of the movie from when it first came out and it was well reviewed but it wasn't overly uh, critically evaluated. It wasn't, uh, it certainly, it, it, I don't think it received any Oscar nominations. Uh, it didn't appear on many like, top 10 lists for 1995. And it's interesting to see what has happened uh, in the intervening uh, 27 years since the, uh, since the movie came out. That it's kind of now in, in a place where I think most people regard it as possibly one of the best movies of the 90s uh one of the absolute best movies of the genre um and it's thought of more more highly by the by the art crowd i would say than when it came out and i think one of the big problems was when it came out and we've talked about this before was that it was classified as an action movie and for a lot of people that immediately set the bar of how well it could be thought of. It was a, it's an action movie with big name actors, which mm-hmm. could not possibly be further from the truth. Uh, it has incredible action in it, but it is most definitely at its heart, uh, a drama movie. And um, I apologize drama. if you hear some, some noise in the background, they're unfortunately picking up the garbage at the, at the worst possible time, but um, <laughs> at life in the city. Um, but <laughs> Uh, I forgot what I was saying there. Um, but when, it was classified when the big, as a drama, and I tried. Yeah, it was classified crime drama. Yeah, and <laughs> what's interesting is when I've seen. Uh, I also in prep for this, I went and I looked for people's reactions to the movie on YouTube 
people who were watching it for the first time. And one of the things mm. I noticed in looking at the reactions was how many people were surprised at how much of a drama it was. Like I, there were a number of comments of, my gosh, it's almost like the, the robberies in the background. This is more like a, uh, about in, an interrelated uh, character story arc type type movie. Mm-hmm. And I remember it surprised people because I think you put the name, uh, if you don't know anything about it, you just see Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Val Kilmer, you have a name like Heat, and I think people are just kind of thinking it's going to be a, kind of an action crime drama about going from bank robbery to bank robbery, and Al Pacino is just trying to catch him. And it really catches people off guard how much the movie spends developing its characters and setting it up to interlace those story arcs in a way that pays off in the end. It's a it's a three hour movie, which should tip people off that it's not just going to be a sort of run in the mill. Uh, kind of action crime drama but it was like I said it is interesting to see how it's thought of now compared to when it came out I looked at some of the original criticisms and um, let's see if you agree with this here there's a number of people even ones that reviewed it well said that it was too long that, that was that was one of the big criticisms when it came out uh, even from people who gave it three or three and a half stars and most of them said they pointed to the the scene the big scene, the big shootout from the bank heist, and they said, "You're, you're barely two hours into the movie. Two hours in, yes. And and you still have an entire another hour after this. That feels like that should have been the climax, and that should have been building towards the end of the movie. <clears throat> and I can let's say I can only think of it that they were looking at it through the lens of how do you structure an action movie? Like how would you structure Die Hard? And um, mm-hmm. if you're looking at it through that lens then I think they're correct. But... and Oh, oh no, please go ahead. Well, I'll interject with two sample films and that one you mentioned, Die Hard. Die Hard is very much a two-character film. So they took the time they needed to just flesh out those characters and have the protagonist and antagonist um, kind of clash with each other. There it is. But, like, the criticism being like it should have ended in the, the climatic moment there of the gun battle. Uh, and I think I should mention, we're, I don't know how many minutes we're into this thing. Just like Heat, anybody that watches the opening scene of Heat and realize there's no dialogue for about 7 to 10 minutes should know this is not your typical action movie. It's not. It's not that kind of movie. Uh, so, spoilers to be sure, folks. This is your 26, 27-year spoiler warning for you. <laughs> and- if, if you have somehow avoided watching Heat, um, especially for perhaps if you're a little bit younger and a movie from 1995 is, is what you would call an old movie. Uh, I know what you're for, missing. I, see, I, I guess I'm not, I, I'm at the age, someone says 1995, I go, oh, so it's a, it's a newer film. Some of those critics at the time uh, were still some of the greats that uh, we revered until the early 2000s and the internet came along and everybody was a critic but those were the ones that basically movies depended on their word to drive people to um, to fill in theater seats there was no other way to see it yet there was no aftermarket even though Spaceballs kind of showed us that you can still pirate a movie while it's still being made <laughs> anybody <laughs> knows that reference yeah, yeah. still making the movie well, if, you, if you know you know <clears throat> If you know, you know. Yeah, but uh, one of the main criticisms for... And let me know if it's coming in too loud, by the way. Uh, one of the main criticisms of 
any movie, any, any film done about Wyatt Earp and the OK Corral, was it the movies ended with the climax being the OK Corral shootout? Because that's what everybody knows. Tombstone said, we're going to keep going with the story. It doesn't end there. They went for another hour because there was just so much more that happened that it, it puts uh, it, it puts the story in the, the historical context, regardless of of uh, how much of it is uh, is embellished for the Earp's sake and how much is it hurts the Clanton's sake or whatever. But the point is that they kept going with the story to f- at least finish that story. In the case here, because people looked at it through that lens too, I imagine, because uh, I think Tombstone and Heat were removed about two or three years in between Very them. Very close together, yeah. Heat... Anybody that sat through this for two hours already would know, dude, there isn't any action yet. If anything, like a, a scene or two, everything is a suspense thriller up until that point. Well, unless we're counting the opening scene, which was a very, yeah. very slow, methodical build there's, to something awesome. There's, there's, there's really, there's two set pieces in the movie. There's, there's some additional uh, action throughout the movie. But I'd say there's two, there's two set pieces. One of them at the beginning when they knock down the, uh, the armored truck. And then obviously the big bank heist shootout, which is the the clear centerpiece of the movie. And then there's there's action interspersed through moments throughout it, but there aren't really any further big action. You know, like I said, this is not Die Hard, but at the time they kind of built it that way, which I think is a little yeah. un- unfortunate. And like I said, they really kind of misled people. Like I said, and it is funny to to look at people's reactions to going, "Wow, it's uh, it's such a character story." Where's where's the bank robbery? <laughs> and uh, modern modern day movies don't. It's really hard to find this kind of talent because yes, like the the arts uh, re- re- have more way more respect for a film like this to be able to balance that fine line of character drama interspace with with poignant action moments and and drama where it's not taking away detracting everything complement like the like the, the, the their their cogs that just fit so well because there are films today that are so artsy in character for the sake of being that and and then when the action happens it's like this wasn't worth the wait it's like it was such a slow burn for the just for the purpose of being a slow Burn. And then you have the other example where you have more action but not enough character. Uh, and what always interests me is that modern day films, action films, uh, are made with an international audience in mind. So there's very little character involved or story. It's just like, just get from point A to point B and call it a day. I think a film that balances it well would be some of the recent Mission Impossible movies even though it's like really that's the excuse to keep going take your mind out of it you're enjoying the action and it it works but a film like John Wick which I thought would be much well received because it's kind of like the man with no name or the mysterious character that doesn't have to say much um like kind of like kind of like a western uh, spaghetti western influence to our mysterious protagonist I thought that would have worked well I've had international friends and family complaining about John Wick saying that he's not a good actor like uh I think he had it out of the park but that, that's what I mean that a modern <laughs> movies miss that where this thing this film is not that far removed from this era and it's and it's just it's a marriage done so well with all the elements that were put in and 
And that's why we took time to develop to get to this episode because it warrants spending that time to discuss the mythology behind this. It, it's the kind of movie that uh, great, you know, greatness really has to be dissected sometimes to be fully appreciated because you can watch Heat and go, wow, it was an amazing movie. But when you realize all the things that had to happen to create it, you really realize because a lot of times you go back and you watch movies like this and you go, oh, they don't make movies like this anymore. Oh, and there's a reason why. Heat really is uh, a passion project of its director, uh, Michael Mann, who, of course, has done many other um, amazing movies. Uh, the Last of the Mohicans, uh, of course, known for uh, creating Miami Vice in the 80s and that sort of aesthetic, which uh, maybe we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, we talk about the cinematography of the movie. Um, but it's it's the work of about 10 to 15 years of, of, of prepping to get to this to get to this point um and i think maybe maybe at this point we've kind of set up the the lore around the movie maybe we'll kind of start to get into the things that that sort of make it great uh i have sort of a little roadmap here of uh why why he does great starting with sort of the standard filmmaking things and then the things that happened uh in the making of it and the behind the scenes and the years worth of prep that went into it to make this three-hour uh movie so i thought maybe we'd start off just by talking about kind of the basic stuff uh the two things that immediately sort of stand out um about this movie or i should say there's three the actors the cast and the acting the cinematography and the music um so maybe we'll just start off and talk about the cast here because um a lot of people may not know part of this movie was developed by michael mann to get Al Pacino and Robert De Niro together in a movie. They had technically been in The Godfather Part 2 together, which was the only movie they had been in. But of course, uh, De Niro played the uh, the young Godfather, so they had no scenes together. They had never been in a movie where they shared screen time prior uh, to this movie, which was one of the big surprises of the, of the movie. And spoiler alert if you haven't seen this, but uh, it goes against convention in that their screen time together is very sparingly dispersed throughout the movie. There's real, there's really one big scene that they share together, and then they share the screen time uh, at the end. And you would think that's, uh, like I said, goes against the grain what you would think would, would make the movie work. But by limiting how much time they have together, the moments when they're on screen are kind of magical. They're, they're, they're really some of the standout scenes uh, in cinema. And then you put in this incredible uh, supporting cast. It's kind of a who's who of uh, great actors from the 1990s, and, and including Val Kilmer, who something, you know, given where his career went uh, after this, people forget that at one time he was considered actually a very good actor, not just a, you know, a movie star, like, you know, when he was coming off of a Top Gun or uh, what other movie, uh, Willow from the, uh, from the eighties, um, that he was actually a, a, a very good actor. And I consider this to be sort of the, Holiday, uh, the, of course. The, yeah. And, and yeah. And, and, you know, he made these movies kind of around the same time period of his career. Um, Gosh, there was, was a number Batman of after this one, by the way. Yeah, oh, well, maybe that's when his career started to go. Stop. Well, no, I think it was the same. Wait, no, it was the same year he was Batman. 
Oh dear goodness, poor poor Val. <laughs> That's talk about talk about di- uh, dichotomy there. But you know, uh, Danny Trejo uh, was in this. Uh, he played the uh, the, the driver. Um, I'm gonna forget the gentleman's <laughs> name. Help me out here. The the Allstate guy, who was also Dennis the, Haysbert. Yeah. Yes, who was also in the unit. Um, did an amazing job. Um, in this, uh, I believe you're uh, Ashley Judd, who um, incredible actress. Um, there's. One of the rare moments where you've seen Hank Azera not behind the microphone for a Simpsons thing. Yes, that's what <laughs> I said. Yes, the camera. <laughs> uh, such good people in the uh, in the supporting roles. Uh, the, musician, the ensemble, uh, the ensemble Henry Rollins is in it. People forget that too. He plays the uh, the security manager for uh, for Van Zant. Um, yeah, the actor who uh, plays Van Zant. Uh, I'm forgetting his name too. Yeah, he was William in the Dark Fitchner. Knight. What? Well, yes, yeah, thank you, William Fitchner. Yeah, uh, and there's um, uh, Tom Sizemore. Tom Sizemore always brings that gangster element to the picture, you know. He was and such a good actor in the '90s. Ted, Le- Ted Levine. Yes. Right Gosh. after scaring the pants out of everybody, or freaking everybody out from Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> it's like you're the same dude. <laughs> yeah. So it was such. Uh, it was such an incredible such an incredible cast uh, that they got there for it. And then you paired it with the two things that I think Michael Mann does extremely well. One is aesthetic. Um, I talk a little bit about that. Obviously he was the creator of Miami Vice in the 1980s. And you can see that derivative in the style of heat. It's, it's toned down. It's not a kind of uh, over neon saturated uh, look, but um he, he brings that very kind of dark, uh, almost almost David Fincher esque kind of look mm. to some of the uh, the cinematography, uh, some of the incredibly smooth camera work and and pans that that, that are in the movie. Definitely um, one of, one of the standouts of the movie. Um, in some ways, tied to the cinematography, and I don't know, maybe you want to talk a little bit about this because you're uh, sort of knowledgeable. Are the locations that they used? Um, yes, and in the movie because Los Angeles, one of the, I'd say one of the things that makes Heat great, that makes it more than the, what's the phrase, the greater than the sum of its parts, is the fact that in addition to the story, the setting is a character too. Yes. The fact that it's set in Los Angeles is not happenstance. It's not like, well, we need it's a crime movie. We need to be in a major city, and well, it was too expensive to shoot in New York, so we shot in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is integral to the story, and when you watch the movie unfold you feel like you've been all over Los Angeles, which was purposely part of what Michael wanted. He wanted to shoot it in a way that it didn't feel like every movie you've seen that takes place in LA. He wanted this, and you mentioned the uh, the no-name character when you were talking about John Wick. Uh, funny enough is that one of the influences was, of the movie was that they viewed it as not that much different from a western and when you look at some mm. of the, the rural locations that they that they used in the movie they wanted to create that feel that you were you were in this labyrinth of la you you're in the you're in the city you're in the nightclubs and you're out where um i think it's the scene where he goes to work the informant you know it's uh, yes where they used to do like uh, i think dog fighting or something out there or, to, or yeah, cock fighting or something like that, like that. and uh, <laughs> um and and just all the different locations and you really felt like you were in this labyrinth of la 
because he wanted that to be a central character to set up the sort of uh, one of the major themes of the movie of isolation, the difficulty of connecting um, from, from from other people, the, sort of the dispersion uh, of being lost in this kind of major metropolis, so to speak. And uh, I know that you're a little more personally familiar with some locations if, if you want to talk about that. I, I, I think that is what my I have my connection with this movie uh, the most because as an Angelino born and raised and and knowing that the opening seemed like hey my church is like right around the corner and I know that <laughs> that, that Toyota's the uh dealership well the, the used car dealership became Toyota Central well we, we I always saw the commercials in Spanish you know Toyota Central or Central Toyota because on Central Avenue it was it just to see the dynamics of how much it's changed over the years it's 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 amazing it takes me all the way back LA is not what it used to be unfortunately but um it's like everything that that I guess some people would praise the latest the Batman movie for is what he did to a T because um, one of the and I don't want to commingle but there's a lot of similarities with both movies besides the fact the same production company or, or same studio Warner Brothers same length two hours and 45 minutes they're both crime dramas and investigations procedurals in a way um, the cinematography is key to both of them and one of the things, and you hit it the hit around the head, a lot of people that are fans of the, of the character Batman praise the, the the Batman for making Gotham a character. So the city itself was a character, and and when people praise it, like yeah, and you, if you appreciate that, you have to see Heat because this is the standard on how you do it. You don't have to think about it, dude. This guy just did it. It's, it's almost like. He made it look easy. What it took 17, I don't know how many Batman movies in total, starting with the, the Adam West stuff, even before that, like <laughs> all the way to get to that movie, it took that long to make Gotham a character. And people are like, oh, we finally get this. We finally get that. Here is the standard of someone that did it. And he it's like he was walking and chewing gum at the same time. Because as you said, every location to uh, uh, that happened here, it's L.A., Alameda Corridor before they start throwing in the actual corridor. Now that's a that's a highway to the ports from down uh, from the industrial area in central Los Angeles all the way to the ports. That didn't exist. There was a lot of dirt roads, um, a, a lot of rundown. It, it almost looked like Tijuana in some of those parts of Alameda uh, Boulevard. And yes, yours truly as a as is a construction inspector uh, for the banks would go to some of these parts. I'm like, what the flip is this? So yes, I I did get to experience a lot of this firsthand. Um, so seeing all of it, and it's like all, everything you see in the movie is Los Angeles. So a recent movie that that said, oh, it makes LA look so beautiful, La La Land. So yeah, that's the fictionalized version of LA. This film is LA, and it stands the test of time. And the mere fact that you can experience all of that within one city is what makes LA unique compared to the likes of New York. Uh, to, to the likes of a, or even a Boston or a San Francisco. You don't get all that like you get over here. It's the I, terrain and the topography, the geography. It's all awesome. I, yeah, I don't think this movie would have been the same. Uh, you can't just uh, – because a lot of movies, you can kind of just transpose them. You go, well, that could have been filmed in New York. That would have, that could have been filmed in San Francisco, and you could substitute one major landmark for another landmark, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge for whatever you know, comparative – uh, mm -hmm. landmark you have another place this is uniquely out you take this and you try to film this in san francisco it becomes a completely different movie mm -hmm. uh you can't make heat and just go 
well, we can film it wherever. It was truly an integral part um, of the movie. And that's kind of a lost art uh, as yeah. I, I think as, as filmmaking is gone and um, as people are more worried about uh, budget and where we can film, you don't have movies really anymore that are kind of made for a city. They're sort of made to almost be generic so that you can go, well, we can go film 80% of this up in Toronto and then we'll get our few shots that we need in New York and we'll save on budget that way. Um yeah. And just it'll chime in just a little bit because I, we have to talk about just how set up the opening scene is uh, and oh. all that because it, it does a good job in first the robbers doing their thing and every on, ensemble character introduced there and their personality is still shining through a mask somehow uh, and then you have the the just opposed to the cops doing the investigation when they arrive L.A. Homicide shows up right um, and here's here's why I, I feel there's so much. That's like a movie that tried really, really hard because I, I, just over the weekend I was watching um, some of the behind the scenes stuff for the Batman because you know, the algorithm on YouTube is, is spamming me with it. And I'm like, okay, fine, I'll bite, <laughs> I'll watch it. Um, but uh, uh, everybody that praises the Batman, a lot of this was actually shot in a soundstage because they were able to shoot actual locations with seven to eight different cameras capturing a 360 sphere, which they then... Um, projected onto characters through a 360 LED environment on these screens. Wow. So they never had a go anywhere. So they could control the elements. They could control the lighting. They could do everything. That's what the, the car chase is amazing. And I'm like, did they really drive? Yes and no. So when you see the, the behind the scenes, like, whoa, it's crazy. But one thing that you touched upon, because they were talking about it in the in the Batman behind the scenes stuff, was that you don't have to worry about that sunset. You don't have to worry about the location or this and that or reset for these different things because you can still do it. Like, all right, let's do it again and just reset the, the lights and then keep doing it again. It could Gotham isn't anywhere on a map. So you you don't get a sense of actual location within gotham that's the one negative about the whole thing they're at a funeral um in in somehow in the center of 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 gotham they're on the top of a building somewhere in gotham you never get a sense of where they actually are where's the ice lounge where the penguin is you don't get that in la this is why i wanted to connect it to someone that did their homework you cannot make that up because it's just in those little details you know this guy either lived in LA or did all of his homework because just that moment after the crime scene and then LA homicide and does their investigation at, at Al Pacino's not even saying any lines of dialogue point that way so say oh yeah they picked this spot because of the proximity to freeways <clears throat> that way it's like this freeway that freeway goes that way like this way oh they picked this and it's like dude someone did their homework because yes that's how those on ramps and off ramps work and anybody that's been in downtown la knows just how freaking confusing they are so yeah. if you if you nailed that at least then you know that's why and that really plays a pivotal point when they do that same thing again and now they're at the la ports you know not to give anything away there right but the point <laughs> is that they they do that again over there and i just i just love that like this guy knew why he was filming there, how he was filming there. Everything was important. It could be a freaking little little chain link fence. It's a detail that might not matter to you. It's a it's, it's important for him. He needed that in frame because everything tells a story. Why? Because that chain link fence was a hobo behind it, and he saw the whole thing, or at least heard the whole thing. <laughs> it's like what? Those little details. It's it, it's amazing that you if you catch it it'd be great because 
There's another scene that was filmed there about seven years later for my favorite TV show, 24, with Kiefer Sutherland. Oh. They filmed a scene right there, the same place where the where where the big rig is stationed to go ram the, the armored vehicle. So they shot it right there, and then Jack Bauer answers the phone. And this is the heat of, 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 of traffic, okay? So it's rush hour. People are like, yes, Jack. And it's like, yeah, we're going to get them over here, this place. It's off Florence and... Um, and I forget what other um, uh, perpendicular street he had to go to. He's like, all right, I'll be there in five minutes. Anybody that's been there knows that's a 20-minute drive without traffic. But he, Jack Bauer was going to be there in five minutes. And the show was in real time. So it's like, oh, I, I, it took me out of the experience. We're all laughing. It's like, that's impossible. If he can do it, I want to know how he did it in five <laughs> minutes. Because I've driven that over and over again. That's never, ever happened. So uh, that Michael Mann... Just that's why, like anybody that knows anything, just explain those little things. Everyone was doing their homework, which makes the supporting cast sound even smarter when they're delivering the dialogue. Like, oh, these guys know what they're doing when they're yeah. investigating. That's why it's so good. It's dialogue rich with a purpose. It's not just they're like, oh, it's cringe, cringy dialogue, like the new Top Gun movie. It's cringy but enjoyable. Not here. You're not gonna get any of those throwaway lines. Everything is important. It's like he didn't leave anything on the cutting room floor because if he did, it everything you saw was purposeful. And there's no way to even remove five seconds off this thing. Everything served a purpose in this runtime and dialogue. It's just absolutely astonishing. Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. Um, Michael Mann goes out of his way to help his actors in that regard he gives them all all the actorly things that people want like you know what's what's the background what's my motivation what's the, all the little details well he's going to supply that for you you're going to have everything you're going to have the setting you're going to have dialogue you're going to have you have everything you need at that point is if you're a good actor to work with to to create your character um i think it was dennis haysbert he talks about this in the behind the scenes that uh, he said that Sometimes as, as an actor, you have a, ten, a tendency to want to be more demonstrative. Like you got to bring something to your uh, to your character, mm. um, and you got to put your stamp on it. And he said that working with Michael Mann kind of changed his viewpoint on that. That he was very much, he said, uh, his approach to acting was kind of like just taking a nice, slow kind of backswing and a, sort of a nice smooth swing, and just just let let the dialogue, let everything that's been developed around you, you know work for you you don't necessarily need to put something on it when so much is already there and dennis said that he shaped his character um that way that he realized that everything was already there the story the structure the settings and things like that and that he didn't have to create all this and he didn't have to do all those things he's kind of had the just let the let the dialogue sort of speak for itself that really the character was was already there um, and you see that in a lot of the performances, I feel, in the in the movie. Outs- outside of maybe Al Pacino, who does an Al Pacino uh, movie. And even that was done with uh, intention. A uh, little, yes. uh, tid- little tidbit is that it's not in the movie, but it forms his character. And he, Al Pacino talks about this in the behind the scenes that um, one of the motivations for his character is that they came up with that his character chipped cocaine. And that mm. because of that, every now and then he would kind of pop off or sort of go off and it's it's nowhere in the movie that he takes that he takes drugs but when you watch his performance and see that and that when he just kind of occasionally explodes uh, (laughs) that it forms the background but a lot of the other performances 
they just come across as very natural. They're just uh, yeah, you, you're watching the movie. You find you're just watching a conversation. Like you could just be watching a like an episode of a uh, cops or something like that. When there's scenes mm. of characters standing around um, and talking, it's one of the most. Na- it's, it sounds like a contradiction, but it's one of the most naturalistic, hyper realistic movies I've ever seen. And that mm. Michael Mann adds theatricality with his camera setups and the music and all these <laughs> other things, but at the core is a very grounded. Uh, grounded movie the, the only other movie maybe like pops off my head is um i felt like parts of sicario were, were, were kind mm. of like that and in, in, in some regards just watching the scenes where you just kind of forget that it's that it's a movie almost that's just the, how, how the dialogue is how the performances are are sort of oriented um and, and i think that's that's a really good point because as much as i love sicario i have some issues with continuity in the film uh even some some mis. Uh, some missed markers on some actors in the same scenes. I'm like, did they script the makeup there? So I try <laughs> not to be too hard on it because the first experience you're taking, you're like completely out of it. Like, whoa, my goodness, this is like legit, real and good. But he, which by the way, was not on any pre-existing material. It's all original, which yes. is huge. Um, the these are titans in that in that sphere. These actors. You know they had a stamp on something like e- even the 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 demolition uh, um, um, a wholesaler that Val Kimmer was purchasing from the beginning anybody should recognize him as the attorney that got eaten in half by a, a t-rex and like <laughs> hey I know that guy for Jurassic Park that doesn't happen it's like, you, it's like your, your mind clicks that you've seen him before but you don't care it's like it you it you don't have any time for it the movie's not letting you recognize these faces from previous existing properties you're just lost in it he's like oh it's just robert de niro coming down a, a, an escalator no you don't think it's robert de niro coming down the escalator you're like who is this guy coming down the escalator what is his motivation what's what's going on here it's it's like well, there's a magic to the film that you forget who these guys are in real life because like, oh i've seen them before and you forget they're probably the main draw for having watched it because everything they work so well together and it's just like you said it's natural it's authentic so you it, it's like it's them that's why you don't think of it as performance you're just thinking you're watching a life play out uh, and every little detail matters I, I love this this moment this after the shootout where i forget um what been saying it what was uh was investigating but he calls into the station to 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 check in if any actions has happened and the guy that answers the phone is one of those that got shot. So he has like a, a cat, oh, like a like an yeah, arm sling on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just a throwaway line. How's the arm? Just ask him how he's doing. And he's like, uh, I'll live. That's it. It was such a human moment. That's why it's so good. It's like, why you didn't even throw in that line of dialogue. But that line of dialogue makes it human. It's so good. It's like they're all connected. This is a real life drama that's playing out before your eyes. It's it's just so it's it's so methodical and well thought out that it's some of these details. It's it's like it just goes over your head because you're not looking for it. But if it wasn't there, you'll notice it when they add it in. Yes, for sure. Uh, kind of going along with then the look and the cinematography and the locations. I think the final element, sort of major film element. Uh, which I know is might be your favorite here is of course the music and the score 
for the movie, uh, composed by uh, Elliot Goldenthal, but obviously including uh, a number of different pieces that were that were selected by by Michael Mann. But uh, before maybe talk about those, the score by Elliot Goldenthal is it's one of my favorite scores. Um, I have the the soundtrack on vinyl. You know, play it play it many times. Um, mm-hmm. So many iconic pieces. And you would think, once again, it's one of those, you would think it wouldn't work because the score is so eclectic that you would think it would make the movie more too frenetic. Mm. And somehow it matches every scene uh, to a T. It has both a a, a haunting quality to it and a sort of avant-garde quality to it as as well at various places. He uses... um, there's there's strings used in it. Um, I know that one of the things he experimented with was uh, using uh, multiple guitars. There's a couple pieces of, of the score that have a kind of very haunting quality to it. And I know that Elliot used, I think it was maybe as many as like six or seven guitars going at the same time. And it has this sort of layered effect to it that it produces these almost uh, ghostly uh, kind of background uh, sounds that are used at key moments um, in the movie. Uh, I know you and I are both huge fans of the the percussion piece used for the prior to the to the shootout scene for the for the bank heist, yeah, um, which is 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 one of the best <laughs> one of the best scores that I think I've ever heard matching a scene. It's so simple and yet. It creates such attention for that um, for that bank scene, particularly as they're walking out to the car. That was another mm-hmm. thing that I saw watching some of the people's reactions to to the movie for the first time. Is that they all talked about it's taking them forever to get to the car. How are they still not at the car yet? <laughs> and how he how he elongates that moment of all of them walking to the car and the and and the percussive piece, and it's just driving and it's 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 building up the tension, and then he it breaks that tension of the, uh, it has that moment where it goes, it's driving. It goes, and it kind of like lets out for a second. And you get like this, this, this breather before it starts up again. It's it's an amazing piece of music. Yeah. And it creates atmosphere. It doesn't underscore or accentuate any action moment. The action is the action. He lets it breathe. Like the moment you're talking about, as soon as the score is over, the, the guns are the music. It's just firing up, and the sound design is is off the off the charts. Oh. It's so good. The sound editing and the sound design here is just it's on point. It's as it should be. But um, in, in talking to Elliot Golden, I, I can't tell you how many times I heard this soundtrack. Just like you can't even count it either, and I still can't tell you if there's a the- a main theme to it. Because it's like it's all it, it even in the opening song, which is over eight minutes long, it's so drawn out. It's just an atmosphere, but you know it's it's heat. I love his steel cello lament. Mm. I it he just loves playing around with the, with the, a lot of uh, different instrumentation. So sometimes he'll overcompensate for one thing, but is there's a purpose to it. I love how he used the Kronos Quartet here. Because yes. it's just, just yes. so freaking good. Um, I think this was like the thing that uh, helped cement Kronos Quartet because thereafter a lot of people wanted in their music to use the Kronos Quartet uh, for, for score. But 
he's able to either make something so big after out of so small or go so big to overcompensate like his score for the movie uh the 2001 computer animated film um final fantasy the spirit within he used 16 french horns man it was an absolute shrill ride uh, but there's a there's a method to his madness and it works by the way that's one of my top 10 favorite of all time because he creates the atmosphere without his music it wouldn't work same thing here i recently had to make room in my top 10 all-time soundtracks because i had to accept the fact i could not stop listening to this thing this is one of those that was a mainstay on my playlist and the only uh i guess you could say compilation album that i have anywhere because i never ever considered pop music or anything like a uh, non-score related to be considered part of my soundtrack you cannot hear the, the score to heat without michael mann's picks for it because they all belong together normally that would detract like it, it, when you're picking a, another genius at picking music would be quentin tarantino who until yes. the hateful eight he didn't use original score he finally got Ennio Morricone and him to finally work, but he would use Ennio Morricone's classical uh, um, or popular songs from way back when to create a compilation album. So that was literally a soundtrack. It wasn't a score, but he would put it together and he would put it for his music, like for, for his film. That would be considered the original score. Never liked that, never cared. This, however, wasn't like that at all, where... It's, you, you could tell you're listening to Eddie Morricone and then a pop song or whatever, or a 70s reference, whatever. Over here, like right now, I, I pull this up on YouTube. I looked at the, tr the, the, the track list. I'm like, we're missing a lot of songs here. Yes. Because it's like, it's not playing the pop stuff. So when I have, when I have the full score, which is like a three-hour listening because the full version of every single song, it's like, well, yeah, because you need it it's it's part of it it's all a character in of it itself it complements itself so well like force maker the percussion piece is not even here on this selection because elliot golden didn't do it someone else did but if whoever's none the wiser wouldn't know that you know yes. that that's how interweaved it is into this the everything here that you've been pointing out is a character and plays an integral part as as cogs to this machine that Michael Mann put together. And you can't just take the elements out of it and not expect the other parts to come with it. Oh, and can you imagine Can you imagine hearing the end of the movie without God moving over the face of the waters? <laughs> you can't, so that's and, the only way. You know, and, and, and it's such an unusual pick, too, that he used he used Moby for for that, and he used a cover, I don't think it's, it's even on the soundtrack we're listening to, um, a cover of uh, New Dawn Fades that he did, and he uses it for the scene where he Al Pacino's on the freeway and he's driving to stop uh, Robert De Niro prior to the first time that they that they meet up, and it's it's kind of an odd choice, but it works. Same with uh, God moving over the face of the the waters, and it's they're the kind of musical selections of someone who has been planning the movie for a long time and already knows what they want in that moment they're just not they're not trying to just map music onto onto a scene they already know how the entire 
piece of the movie fits together. They know where the scene fits within the uh, the collection of scenes uh, throughout the movie. Because mm. you could have gone in a totally different direction um, with uh, with that ending scene with Robert De Niro and and Al Pacino. And uh, it's like I said, it's one of those things when certain certain pieces of music they match the scene so well that you cannot possibly imagine anything else taking its place. Um, and that, that for sure does that, um, for, for that scene. Um, I, I was going to comment on that, uh, since we're talking about the things that heat has probably bookending the movie. One of my absolute top 10 all time favorite openings and top Mm. 10 all time favorite, uh, endings. It, you know, it, it, it sticks both the takeoff and the landing, uh, to the movie um but that entire opening scene um where, where where the train is coming in and the music is is very slowly starting to swell in the background and it it lets you know that the movie well right then and there if you thought you were sitting down for an action movie that opening scene lets you know that you're it everything is in that opening scene that it's gonna be something kind of deeper it's going to be this kind of uh large scale story it's going to be perhaps a a little bit epic a little bit deeper that opening scene conveys so many emotions with the music and just the shots of that train coming in and yet you think it's very simple it's a very you know it's not a boisterous score and it's not an elaborately shot uh opening uh, you know granted the camera ends up following robert de niro uh out it's a very simple opening but it's it's incredibly effective. That that should be uh, a lesson to other filmmakers. You don't have to do, you know, some zany open the film with a lot of action. You know, he opens it about as slow as possible, and it's one of the most effective openings um, I've ever seen. And then he bookends it with one of my favorite shots of all time, and he holds that shot of Al Pacino holding Robert De Niro's hand. Um, where you you're, you don't even see, it's like I said it, it's not conventional at all. You know, most instincts for directors is you've got to drive the emotion, so you have to show facial uh, reactions. Mm-hmm. You've got to be on the air. I feel like most directors would have ended that scene on Al Pacino's face, but he doesn't do that. He he takes that. He lets the the action. He set up the story so well that he doesn't need to do that. He can let it. And he uses that medium shot instead. And you see Robert De Niro, he slowly slumps away. And he just lets that image of, of Al Pacino just kind of looking into the distance. He's not even looking at Robert De Niro's character and just holding, the, holding his hand and looking out and the music. And it says so much by doing so little. I, 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 the more I thought about it, I can't see too many other directors shooting it that way. I felt like most of them would have wanted to go for, uh, I said, some kind of a close-up on Al Pacino or spend more time on the Robert De Niro character uh, dying. Once again, it, it's kind of like the acting itself. It feels kind of effortless. It doesn't feel like he... It's not like a... Sorry, but it's not like a Steven Spielberg movie. It doesn't feel like it really <laughs> trying to tell you what to do uh, with, with, with the camera. And it is incredibly effective uh, because of that. That's a director that knows his material. Um, I feel that some directors, they shoot things 
uh, in different ways because they don't trust the material. They don't trust what the effect is going to have. And they go, oh, we, we better have a shot in there of, of showing the audience that. And they don't trust uh, the effect of what the image paired with the sound is going to do. And they, edit, they end up adding too much. And it, it has emotion to it when they do that, but it doesn't have the lasting emotion that something simple like that last iconic shot um, of Heat has. Do you... So. Do you think, because it sounds like Michael Mann had creative control over this project, do you think that movie could be made today? I think he would have to go lower budget. Well, by a major studio. He, yeah. He, it wouldn't. He, this, this would be made on, uh, well, actually not anymore, but there was a, a short time period where maybe he would have gone to to Netflix and, and said, hey, I'm Michael Mann. I really want to make this personal project that I've been thinking about for, for 10 years. And I've got these really good actors and they might have given them a, a budget enough to do this. This is not a safe movie, I feel, for today. There's way too much character development. Even though the action is good, it doesn't spend enough time on it. Uh, by, by modern days, even at the time it came out, but by modern day standards, it demands too much of the audience. There's lots of going back and forth with the characters. You have to keep track of what is going on. There's a lot of subtleties in the in the movie. The last third of the movie ties together thematic elements that I feel lead a lot of people because at that point they're they're kind of done with the movie because they've they've seen the the shootout and that was kind of the mm. end of the movie for them. Um, I think Shame. it's a tough sell. Even with that cast, if you said, hey, um, and I, I should say this, that, that unlike uh, unlike uh, Pacquiao versus Mayweather, they got Robert De Niro and Al Pacino at the la- one of the last points that they could have gotten them to make this movie, that the age that they were at, where they were at in their careers, they were still big stars. They were still, I would say, going through the, going through the last of their prime, so to speak. Um, in the in in the mid '90s, and that they caught them right at that point um, to to be able to do something like this. So, could you make this today? <sighs> yes, you could do it. Hey, I've got two big name actors, and I want to do this thing. Yes, could you make heat like this? I don't think so. I think a first test screening after audience started complaining that there were too many characters. I didn't understand why did it drag on for so long. Um, I think Heat ends, ends up being a eh, maybe two hours and a quarter at the most. I, I, I think I think they just tear that thing out. They probably take out a lot of the sub elements, like with the daughter and uh, the Dennis Haysburg character, almost certainly disappears uh, mm-hmm. in that movie for sure because that's one of those that you have to uh, you have to really be paying attention because it's one of those goes. Why am I watching this guy? And why do they keep cutting to them? Um, yeah since we're talking about it it was it's a very risky type of filmmaking and i already mentioned this once but i almost wonder if he was an inspiration for it uh sicario does the same thing where you have a character that does not appear to be tied to the main narrative of the story and you keep cutting back to them and it's to set up a secondary element uh in the movie or a secondary theme that you want to tie in uh at the end and it's a very risky thing because First of all, audiences are trained to kind of follow the narrative of the character, and you keep cutting to something that you don't understand yet how it's going to fit in. You can lose interest real quickly. It can take you out of the movie if you're if you're not enjoying it. It's a risky style of um, of filmmaking, and 
all of it so that ultimately the character can die at you know at a pivotal at a pivotal point um if you don't pull that off the the downfall is pretty steep because you spent enough time that you, you've had to cut away from the main action several times and if people don't like it that's one of those things well that was stupid yeah we kept getting to that guy and then he died that was it's one of those things that can really take you out of a movie if you don't pull it off so it's like i said i've said this a couple times it this is a director's movie this is someone who mm-hmm. you know they use those terms in filmmaking he had a vision michael mann had a vision of what he wanted to uh what he wanted to show and i think maybe that kind of leads us into the next thing i sort of wanted to to talk about were what were the major themes of the movie because I, we've, we've talked a lot about how it's not just an action movie and i think one of the things is that it deals with a lot of central themes that that people can relate to um the, the term art house movie kind of gets a bad rap because people think that means it's going to be sort of pretentious and incomprehensible mm-hmm. heat to me is an art movie that anyone can watch and appreciate and 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 and, and understand but it's not a mainstream movie not at all not well, a, yeah um before touching on, on those elements i just do to wrap up the aesthetics because there there is something for why i keep bringing up um, anything related to batman not just because everything i have around me is batman but because <laughs> the dark knight and even the batman and watching it i felt a lot of heat influence on these films <clears throat> and even though it wasn't directly mentioned in the opening bank heist scene to the dark knight where the, um, the these clowns are are robbing a bank that whole sequence i'm like i've seen this before holy snubs this is this is heat this is the bank heist scene and there was a throwaway mention to that an actor that was not credited in the entire film is william finchner which yes is the, yeah. the bank manager of the opening scene of the bank robbery heist so two connections the bank robbery and the, him the, the actor connected to heat that's why some reviewers were even mentioning that it's one of the best bank heights seen since heat i'm like yeah, but I think Heat still beats it by a mile. <laughs> like, I don't care the Joker's in it. But it, it still had a poignant impact for the reveal of the Joker. But still, it's like it had a huge influence. <clears throat> and in that film, you you do get um, a larger Gotham. but it, And you get a sense of space and feel for where things are because it's a film in Chicago. But you do not get the city as a character. So now just oppose that to the dark uh to, to the batman which many people are saying is as good as a dark knight which nope far from it what angers me about the batman is that it could have serviced better as a miniseries it should not have been a film it is too damn long it's the same runtime as heat though but the movie is so long and gotham as much as i love is a very central key character to this whole uh, whole place that the cinematography is gorgeous the art direction is important to this you do not know where things are just like the third act where the movie should have ended but it didn't and went on for like another 40 minutes with local complaint about heat is a proper complaint for the batman see how these are kind of parallel to each other the big thing is wait a minute since when the hell are there seawalls in gotham no it was never mentioned in the entire film but suddenly it's like, oh, the seawalls have been breached. The what? All, all of a sudden it turned into Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, it, it came out of nowhere. It's like there was never any mention. We never saw a map of Gotham. 
until it was needed for the plot. Like five seconds before the plot needed it, they mention they show a map of Gotham. Then it happens, never getting a sense of feel or direction to the uh, to Gotham itself. Didn't even know there's a freaking stadium there. That's where the climax of the episode of the, of the movie happens. Even though it's one of the most awesome Batman action scenes ever made, grounded by the way, because it's all practical effects. But still, it's like you never got that. That's why going back to Heat, which is why I said there's a lot of the Heat influences in the Batman too that I can see. In Heat, I never felt the movie was needed to finish. There, I'm gonna skip this one. Um, so with, with with respects to the the gun battle, the gun battle, um, you need to see the aftermath of what happened. You couldn't just end it there. It's like a lot of lives were just. Um, they took a different turn. First off, they had a shift. The focus, like, okay, are we really going to do the bank heist thing? You got a good thing going on. Don't, maybe you shouldn't come. Then, nah, I'll do it. I'll do it. All right, let's do it. Cool. So they go do this thing. Things go south. We needed to see the after effects on all this stuff. There were too many plot, uh, plot threads that needed to be tied up. That's why you needed the other hour to finish telling the freaking story. And ultimately... The title, the namesake. What is heat? You know, we're, we're, we're we gotta get the sense of what that is, and that is literally the the blue bloods coming after the criminals. It's like, all right, yeah. able to ditch everything when it when it yeah, when it up. really comes to it. Will you, when you feel the heat, be able to drop everything that you're doing? One of the famous lines uh, from the movie, uh, as he tells El uh, Pacino in their famous diner scene, uh, I think it was a. Uh, a guy told me one time, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around the corner. And that's that, 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 that's kind of the essence of the of, of, of the movie, for <laughs> at least for, for, for the Robert De Niro character and for yeah. um, kind of the, uh, the, the, the criminal code, which is one of uh, Michael Mann's favorite topics. He, uh, he, he delves into this in his movie Thief, which came out, I believe, in 19... 19- uh, 80, which in some ways is a precursor um, for for Heat, and he he likes he's done several movies where he deals with characters who um, usually criminals who live by a very strict code, and the code is what mm. allows usually keeps them keeps them out of jail, and they have to s- stick to this. And what happens to them if they deviate from that code, uh, even even just for a little bit? And uh, if you've seen a Michael Mann movie, deviating from from your personal code usually leads to tragedy and something something bad happening. Um, but it's one of, it's one of the big themes of, of Heat is that the the Robert De Niro character lives by this by this code, and this code essentially precludes him from having um, what people call a, a normal type life. You know, he can't have uh, the, the the wife and and the kids. Uh, you see his uh, his house. In one of the early scenes, and then Val Kimmer is over there, and he's saying, "When are you going to get some furniture, furniture for this place?" <laughs> yeah, and he's like, "When I get around to it." When are you going to get an old lady? When I get around to it, and that he uh, he has, you know, he has the money, he has the wealth, and he has almost no real reflection of it in his life. His code precludes him from essentially being able to enjoy that. He he has his crew. But even at that, it's sort of a, a professional relationship that he that he has with all of them, and he, he doesn't really allow, he does not allow himself to get attached to anything 
or any person. Um, and you get to see the effects of uh, one of the big things in the movie is that he opens himself up to uh, a relationship uh, with, with the Edie character. And it proves to be his uh, his undoing. It's one of my mm. uh, favorite scenes in the in in the movie. And he's uh, uh, you know the, the bank job has gone south, and they're they're making the getaway. And John Voight, another actor we forgot to mention, the incredible the yeah. incredible John Voight, who they got to do this movie. Which uh, just real quick side bit about that: John Voight turned the movie down when he was offered the part because he said, um, you know, I'd love to work with you, but this is kind of a I feel like anybody could could play this part you know you could you could mm. pick any kind of actor in hollywood and uh, as the story goes michael mann turned to him and said yeah but then i wouldn't have a chance to work with you and so john white said, <laughs> john white said yes uh to that uh, <laughs> but john voight uh calls him on the phone and at this point de niro and the Edie character are headed to the airport they're on their way out and he says to him he's like um i have to tell you because you asked um but the uh the bad guy, the, the the slick character, uh, who's hiding in the hotel. He's like he he checked into the hotel under the the name uh, Jameson. If you still care, uh, which I figured you didn't. And Robert Turner says, "You figured right. Well, then so long, brother. You're home free." And he says, "So long." And uh, you, you get off the phone, and you get this feeling that even though he's just said, "I'm home free," that he's not going to do it. And he turns to him. He's like, "What is it?" He's like, "Nothing." home free and there's this incredible moment where after he says that they go under this tunnel and he's and everything slows down for just a second and there's like mm. the bright lights of the tunnel and there's this really serene music and normally that would that would indicate that like he really is getting away but michael man has set it up in such a way that you already feel that by watching something that relaxing and serene that something's going to go wrong because it doesn't fit in with the movie. Like, why, why does this look this way? And there's this incredible shot. Uh, Michael Mann does this several times throughout the movie where he, uh, when he wants to show that a character is contemplating something, he dissolves between these different uh, camera angles on on their face where he kind of lets it uh, linger, almost like in slow-mo. There's like a, a slight slow-mo quality to it, and it dissolves into different angles. And you see this side angle from the window, and you see his face just furrow just a little bit and you and it's a very slow elongation of you know he's already thinking that he's not that he's going to do what he's not supposed to do and it's this incredible performance by De Niro and all these emotions go over his face in the span of about 30 seconds and you know that he's he's wrestling with that he's thinking he's going to do this thing and go and get his revenge against Wangro. But he shouldn't do it. He should walk away. His entire life has told him he needs to go and get out. You know, 30 seconds flat. He's already violated that by taking Edie, but he needs to mm. go. And uh, <laughs> this is in the commentary to the movie. There's a little split second in that scene where Robert De Niro smiles. And I always wondered what that was. He has, he has this little smile on his face. Where he goes, <laughs> And apparently that was about is that his character knows what he's doing is wrong. <laughs> And that mm-hmm. he's aware that he shouldn't be doing it. Realization, yeah. Yeah, but he's he's feeling the thrill of s- someone who's lived by such a strict moral code for their entire life. Um, it's kind of like uh, the pastor's kid syndrome, uh, he, where he's he's breaking the rules of his uh, of his code. He's already broken it by letting Edie come into his life, and he's feeling the thrill of living by emotion 
instead of logic and the idea of I just want to do this and I want my revenge and that there's kind of a thrill in that he's not confined anymore by his uh, by his code but that he knows that it could go badly on him and then he of course makes that uh, that quick turn and they yeah. and they and they get off the freeway and the movie's done in such a way that you know as soon, as soon as he takes that turn off the freeway and this is something I saw in multiple reaction videos is that everyone reacts the same way to that scene they went he's not going to make it <laughs> everyone knows that that is like that is the pivotal scene in in the movie uh, in terms of of his character that he he can't let it go and that ultimately that's um that's his down that does lead to his to his downfall um you have a quite literally an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object, object. <laughs> and it's just I, I love the whole setup um well it's, it's the, the juxtaposition of how they're all looking into one another right and um when the when the lapd is surveilling them getting out of the restaurant Who's the loner? He's like, oh, I'm getting information about him. Whatever, whatever. But then later, because uh, they were duped, and I don't want to say how. I don't want to spoil everything for everybody. But uh, <laughs> when the LAPD is made out, and and John Voight's character is, is going over it with uh, Robert De Niro, and it's like three marriages, you know, serve I don't know how many tours. I think it was Marine Corps, or whatever. Yeah, this is not the kind of heat that you want. Yeah, he's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he says something like, yeah, he blew away some heavy crews in Chicago. And, you know, he, he's listening to the guy's resume. He's like, yeah, he's like, uh, you know, uh, Vice Sergeant uh, says Hannah likes you. you know, look how sharp this guy is to do this. Look how sharp he is to do that. And Robert De Niro laughs. He's like, hey, funny as a heart attack, man. Three marriages. What do you think that means? He likes staying at home. He's one of those guys all night, prowling, dedicated, with this much heat in this guy. You should pass. Yeah, and and that's I feel like that's the start of the De Niro character turning away from his code. That 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 logic makes sense, but instead he goes, "It's worth the stretch," and you feel like that's not what he what his character would would, would say. Like that yeah, his character should against, know. Not against that. No, it's like yeah, huh? And I I think it does uh, very well <clears throat> in showing because we do get the story arcs, several story arcs actually, um, but in playing off, I guess themes um in, in this case like heat itself the the principle the the i guess what is it like an honorable thief i don't even know how to how to label that's like uh is there really honor among thieves but it's um well, there kind of is because uh, <clears throat> you sort of see that through the al pacino uh character um in his admiration for Robert De Niro, even though he knows who Robert De Niro really is, you know, it, you go to the diner scene and they've had that back and forth, and you see the admiration. But Al Pacino's character, ha- he never loses sight of what the what the end game is, because after their kind of little their talk and they have that nice little chat, he says to him, he's like, "If it's between you and someone whose wife, you're going to turn into a widow or other. You are going down." Yeah. And he's like, you know, we've been face to face. I won't like it, but this this is the reality. I know who you are, you know, mm. despite the fact that my in my vocation, I can appreciate in a weird way, you know, your your expertise in being able to evade me in this, you know, in this game of cat and mouse. But you know, I know what you really are. And uh, I think uh, I think that as as I already said, because the whole thing about um, uh, oh my goodness, his. His uh, 
Vince Black it on me. So what's Robert De Niro's character's name? I'm gonna regret not even remembering it. Macaulay. Macaulay, yeah. It, it it speaks volumes but during the armed robbery truck scene because they got angry at Wayne Grove for offing one of the security guards. Yes. So then the, the whole point is like this guy died execution style, then they shot these other guys. You got the one, figured Yeah. Why not why, the rest? Yeah, why hesitate? You know, why yeah. live a why why leave a, a living witness? Um, yeah. you know, and it's but it's it, very it's very almost it, I uh, I think Michael Mann talks about this in some of the background stuff. He says, um, he went, you know, one of the big points of the movie is, is of course exploring the dichotomy of the the cop and the criminal, and that in in a in a strange way they're kind of two sides of one of one another. That the cop, in some ways, um, as one of the technical advisors to the film, a cop says, he's like, you almost have to have the soul of a criminal mm. to be able to understand what they're doing to be good at your job to to catch it and that there is kind of a weird uh, connection obviously one of the big pieces of the movie is exploring that uh that the robert de niro character and the al pacino character are in some ways two two sides of, of of one another and it's not just admiration it's sort of understanding that like if you you know al pacino that if he hadn't been a cop he might have been a criminal um and, and that you know had he had he so chosen um the Robert De Niro character could have been a cop, but as Michael Mann says, uh, in some of the background stuff, he said, really the big difference between the two is that, um, the Robert De Niro character is a sociopath and the Al Pacino character is not in that, uh, Robert De Niro cares about Edie. He cares about, you know, his men, but he doesn't necessarily care about your Edie. Al Pacino mm. cares about your Edie. And that's, that's where that, that line is. It's not that he's a total, uh, because Robert De Niro's humanity comes out in the film uh, very clearly, but there's still a clear difference with him. He has no problem if you get in his way. That's simply, that's part of it. And, you know, you will not, as he says to him, you will not get in my way. We've been face to face. Yeah, but I will not hesitate. Not for a second. Perhaps we'll never see each other again. <laughs> it's such a good scene. Um uh. But yes, that that's kind of that's the driving force of the movie is really that's what interested Michael Mann to make this movie. Um, many years ago, he uh, he became interested in this. He he befriended a number of police officers and cops, and he became kind of fascinated with this idea of um, the cop and the criminal, and them being sort of two sides of one another. And the movie Heat is actually loosely based on a true story of. Um, of a thief in Chicago. There's there's a quote-unquote a real Neil McCauley and huh. who was a well-known uh, thief there. And basically, um, there was a, a crew of cops there who were staking him out and that they, you know, they knew that he was taking down scores out there. And the scene in the diner is based on apparently a real experience in which um, basically the police officer who was sort of in charge of... Um, uh, kind of going after the real Neil McCauley basically pulled him aside and they basically had like a some kind of a talk over coffee or something like that and he's like right. look you're, you're working Chicago you know I'm here to take you down and that they kind of had a, a scene similar to that in which he kind of expressed his admiration for him that he was very good at his job he's like you know if you keep working here I'm going to be the one that's going to have to take you know that's going to put you away and apparently the real Neil McCauley 
basically told them that he's like, well, I can't stop. This is my job. Mm. And that, and, and that's kind of in the movie Heat is that um, it's not about the money for the, for the characters. And you see this in the Tom Sizemore character. The scene where they find out, it's after they find out that the, the police are on them and they're trying to decide, hey, do we take the bank or do we split? 30 seconds from now, we're gone on our separate ways. And Tom Sizemore character asks Robert De Niro what he should do. And Robert De Niro tells him, he's like, you know, you got a, you got a wife and kids and, you know, uh, I would cut loose of this if I were you. And yeah. Tom Sizemore turns back to him and says, you know, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. And that it shows that it's not really about the money. It's it's just what they do. It's what they're addicted to. It's what they want to do. Tom Sizemore talks about that he did interviews um, with uh, with some prisoners who were, who were put away for similar type stuff and prep for the movie. And that he asked them, and he said, well, you know, because a couple of them had gotten busted, got out, and they got busted again. And he'd say, well, why did you continue to do it? And he said that one of the guys looked at him and said, well, it was my job. Huh. <laughs> and it was basically that they... Uh, that's what their, their their life was about. It wasn't necessarily about the money. It's like, you know, what do you, why do you wake up in the morning? You know, what, what, what is your purpose in life? Well, I'm a thief. That's what, that, that's what I do. I can't just, I can't just stop. It's not just about, um, you know, risk versus reward. This is, this is who I am. You can't tell me to just stop, stop doing this and that there's an addiction to the, to the process, um, in it. But, uh, I think that was kind of big so you have the dichotomy you have kind of the ad- addiction element to it which you also see in the al pacino character who is also addicted to the process which you see in his failing uh marriage it's a subtle thing but it's a it's a great scene it's after he's at the uh the hospital uh and he's taking his daughter into surgery and he's talking with his with his wife if they can ever uh make their marriage work and he basically tells him he's like you know it's it's like you told me it's all I am is what I'm going after. And she basically gives him um, clearance to, to walk away. She's like, you know, go away if you have to. No, no, I'll stay. No, it's okay. I, I'm, I'm okay. And he's reluctant to leave. But as soon as she gives him permission to leave, it purposely cuts to a shot of him running down the stairs because he's gotten a, a pager that he knows that Neil McCauley is, is on the run. And it shows that as much as he, he cares about his family and he cares about his wife and he cares about his daughter and that part of him wants to be a really good husband, that's where his heart is at. But as soon as he's given permission to, well, if you need to leave to leave, he's gone. He's back. That's 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 where he's at. That's that's his life. His life is um, you know, Tom Seismer says, you know, kind of that, that phrase about, you know, the action is the juice. Well, for the Al Pacino character, it's the same thing. He's addicted to that process of hunting down the criminals, going through everything to get them. And then, you know, and, and, and nailing them. And he can't let that go, even if it means his wife, his family, if everything else has to um, go to the wayside in his life, he can't let that go. And it kind of shows how they all lose something yeah. through this addiction um, that they have. Kind of addiction, loneliness, and the inability to connect are kind of, uh, I'd say the sort of universal themes throughout all the characters, all the characters have some problem in the movie, including all the secondary characters mm-hmm. um, of either not being able to let something go or uh, an inability to connect with other characters. You look at, at the Dennis Haysburg character, you know, he, you know, he's, he's trying to get back on the right path. You know, he's got a supportive girlfriend, but 
uh, you know, he's an ex-con and uh, he's trying to work at that restaurant and he's, he's not getting the break and the, the manager's taking advantage of him. And when the opportunity comes, even with everything in front of him, you know, where his, where his life could go, he can't let it, he can't let it go. Um, and I'd say one of the last things I want to talk about here was that uh, Michael Mann talked about this uh, several times that he's not a big uh, supporter of fate that mm. he, he said it always annoyed him that people say, well, that's just fate was supposed to be that way. And he said, no, it's our choices that make things happen. And in the movie heat, there's more than several moments throughout the movie where characters have to make split second decisions that have um, kind of almost eternal consequences for them. And you see that with the Dennis Haysbert character, you see with the Robert De Niro character, uh, you see a couple other moments um, during the movie, but he likes that moment where um, you're you're presented with a choice. It, it all of a sudden it's it's there. Uh, you didn't you didn't plan for it, and you have to make an immediate decision. And that decision will lead you on sort of one of one of two paths. And that the idea that your life is you know a product of uh, well it just it just happened this way. Well you know the cops uh, it just had that. It's not that your actions and your choices lead you to where lead you to where you're at. Um, and you kind of see that where a number of people make purposeful decisions that lead them to where they are, whether it's the, uh, the Val Kilmer character's uh, wife played by Ashley Judd. I'm forgetting her character's name um, now, but uh, choosing to stick with him or the fact that she essentially sacrifices her son to let the Val Kilmer character get away. Um, I, I always thought that was one of the most, I felt like, painful moments in the in the movie once again it's one of those where all of a sudden you have to make a split second decision um because when the cops is talking to her and he lays it out and it's one of those great we talked about the naturalistic acting style and just great natural dialogue where he's telling her that you know if you don't give up chris you victimize dominic because he becomes an orphan when you go to prison and he kind of lays out the, the life the that, that, that he's like, yeah. And then he goes to gladiator academies like Chino. And um, I, I love the verbiage that that's in heat. It's so, you can tell that it's someone that knows the, that knows the slang and knows the, uh, knows the dialogue that's kind of used on the streets. Um, Cause otherwise I don't feel like most people would have used that term uh, gladiator. <laughs> Uh, academies but uh, <laughs> yeah. um but i that's apparently uh, a term that a lot of people use um to to refer to those prisons because essentially of who goes through the system and and who and who comes out them um and that he's 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 speaking to her in language that he knows that she'll she'll understand and same thing just like all the other characters she she comes to the right decision initially that yes she probably she never should have gotten with uh, with Chris, the Val Kilmer ca- uh, character, and that she needs to protect Dominic. But when she's faced with the choice and he shows up, she can't make the right decision. She gives him the the the, 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 the to, to let him go, and you know we we go into other elements in the story. But presumably, she probably doesn't get a deal because of that, and the the son probably does become an a, an orphan, and she probably does go to jail. So it's, uh, in some ways, it's a very non-redemptive movie. Most people come to bad ends. The 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 daughter who can't deal with the fact that uh, you know her stepfather is gone, 
And uh, even though Al Pacino character, you get the feeling that he wants to be a good father. He's not there for her and her kind of need for a father figure. The fact that she tries to commit, uh, spoiler alert, sorry. Uh, she tries to commit uh, suicide in his hotel room. And um, it's just, uh, like I said, it feels like such a real story it feels like you're yeah. really in uh people's life especially big city life uh, that's what i think a lot of people think of la it's a place where um there's hustle and bustle and everything's going on but it's incredibly difficult to actually uh connect um emotionally spiritually with with, with other people and the way life goes and the way you get treated and the choices yeah. you have to make and i say it very much <laughs> does feel like an la story i suppose it could be new york or another big city but it's very it's um very much rooted uh like i said you as a as a native angelino probably can attest to this better than than i can oh absolutely and like you just in and in caring for for everyone i guess that's why because it felt such a real story that you end up feeding for people that even you don't you don't get to know in the story um a, a dead hooker for example you feel for the victim's family it's a powerful moment or the aforementioned suicide probably the biggest shock of the film it's yes. like as a parent that's just like that threw me out like oh, no you know it's like that just that hits really hard because you don't see it coming anywhere and it's and it but it makes sense um and everything has a purpose it's not just there because it's there everything's intentional um and it's just there's only so much power that you have and, and, and everything is just so layered. Like uh, there's even a storyline about hunting down the rat. Who's the rat? And then sometimes you even forget there's a rat, there's a rat. And then like, oh, it's that guy. You know, it's like, then you just kind of get it. It's, it. There's every, everything matters, which is why you can't leave. If I'm assuming he did it, but if you leave anything on the cutting room floor, um, you'd be leaving out part of it that's integral to the story, such as Dennis Haber's character. It's like you feel for him because you're you're kind of rooting for him, you know, like to have this better life. He's working really hard. It's like, don't man, don't 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 go with them. And and then it's like you know what's gonna happen when he says yes. Just like you said, you know what's gonna happen when Robert turns the wheel, when Neil turns the wheel to veer off an off ramp. It's like, oh boy, we know where this is going, you know. And I don't think we. Uh, I I got to answer my my own question with respect to can this movie be made today? Uh, not as a movie, but as a mini series, yes. Will it have the same effect? No, probably not, because it's one of those things that it, this requires an of uh, a, a viewing investment from the audience that is interrupted when you do it as yeah. a as an episodic series. The it Batman could be could done be though. Done, but I, I feel like you could be. do. <clears throat> could you spread heat over? 20 some uh episodes and have it be uh, a slow i don't know like a one season special a slow slow build to the to the bank it, robbery it'd be it'd be you too could. long it'd be it'd be too long unless if it, it, it's character character drama culminating in a, in a gun epic gun battle um perhaps but it, it would feel almost um formulaic where it's like the superhero movies are expected to end with a big cgi fight and a and a sky beam or whatever but this wasn't contingent on the action. It was choices and elements and moments uh, that uh, affected their lives that led them down this route. And so you, this is the life you choose, the life you lead, and this is where you end up. 
um when you're when you're match when you're put up against someone that's met your match and that's willing to go toe to toe you know round for round with you like whatever you're throwing at me i'm gonna throw just as much or more you know it's 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 an entirely different thing and i it it just won't work in my opinion because you're going to be taken out of that investment, especially if it's Netflix, you could probably binge it and maybe get the same experience, but mm-hmm. there'll always be that, ah, oh, hit next. No, that's, that's different. Cause you, yeah. you still get taken away over here. The only one that could take you out of the experience is you hitting pause and having to go to the restroom or saying it's too late. I'll pick it up next time. Um, uh, my brother-in-law, he couldn't watch a movie for an hour and a half because he always fall asleep. It doesn't matter what it was. This was the, <laughs> so this was like two movies in one for him. And he like watched it all through and he asked me, can, can we watch it again? I'm like, you're still awake, dude. It's like, that was, wow. You know, and this is someone that just, I didn't think he was going to enjoy a, what was considerably a slow burn. And he just yes. absolutely loved it. And it considers one of his favorite movies of all time. And it was due to that, that he ended up going to watch the classics from the 80s and 70s. So now he's become a little bit of a film aficionado uh, just because like that opened the door. That warms my heart. I like to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) It's it is a slow burn, though. I I I really think uh, I think you and I are uh, perhaps maybe more used to watching certain types of movies, and that uh, I think it's hard for me to think sometimes that he probably is too slow of a movie for certain modern audiences. I don't think of it that way because I think of it as kind of quick paced and going through all these characters. And um, I think for I think in today's editing, I think it would just be considered too slow. That there's too much there's too much time set up on developing Edie Edie and Robert De Niro, even though that that is foundational to one of the you know the points of the movie and his character. I think that would get axed. Like, all right, you got you got way too much. Like, you know, have 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 one scene where you know they meet up and they kiss and got it. She's his girlfriend and move on to the next thing. Some of the stuff with the uh, Al Pacino's wife that would probably get axed out too. Mm. Um, they'd be like, all right, leave, you, you leave one scene in there. Uh, probably you wouldn't have that whole subplot with Wangro, like the scene where he, he kills the hooker. And that happens to be the, uh, the call that Al Pacino has to respond to and seeing the effect that it has on him, which then leads him back to talk to his wife, which is also one of the main points of the movie. Michael Mann being, uh, very connected with the police force, um, and there's another actor, and as usual, my brain cannot remember actors' names. Um, uh, yep, I'm, I'm going to fail you here. But there's an actor who used to be a cop who uh, became an actor and was sort of foundational in, in hooking Michael Mann up with a number of people in the Chicago Police Department mm-hmm. back in the day. And he used to do ride-alongs and things like that, and he became very kind of involved with that. And a lot of that culminated in the scene where Al Pacino – is talking to his wife about, you know, she's saying, you know, I didn't, I didn't know I was going to be excluded, you know, from, from what goes on. Cause he tells her, he's like, yeah, don't ask me what happened. And uh, he says something very key to her. He's like, I have to hold on to my angst. It keeps me sharp on the edge where I have to be. And, and that's kind of like one of the driving things is it, we talk about, you know, seeing that, it, that explains somebody is that in some ways that that has to be the Al Pacino characters that kind of like, the Robert De Niro character, he's almost forced to, if he wants to be successful in his profession, he can't have the things that that you might say you want, you know, the wife and the life and the kids and all that kind of stuff, because he has to hold on to that. He can't 
share things in the way that uh, a, a person normally won't because it's the thing that that drives him to to make him good at his job and to like he says to to be on the edge where where I need to be um and I think that ties in with the diner scene where he's telling Robert De Niro and they're talking about their dreams mm-hmm. and he tells them about the dream. He said that he has this reoccurring dreams where um, all the dead people of all the murders he's ever worked are at this banquet table and they're all staring at him and they don't say anything to him. They just, they just look at him and he said, and that's, that's the dream. And Robert Jr. like, no talk. And he's like, no, they don't have to say anything. And you kind of get the feeling that that's, that's kind of his personal turmoil whether he's having that dream or not that every day he's seen that he's seen all the people of all the murders and they're all looking at him saying they're we're waiting on you uh to give us justice and to and to get what we get what we deserve and that he has to hold on to that because it's the thing it's the thing that makes him good at all the elements of his job one of them being his tenacity his tenacity outlasts Robert De Niro. That, that that's really the element that allows him to win, but it's the thing that prevents yeah. him from having the wife and being able to be the father to to a stepdaughter. Is that what you have? A normal life? <laughs> <laughs> so it's was it, was, a, it, it, was it most of that improvised? Well, a lot of that was improvised, supposedly. Some of it was. I think Michael Mann does something similar to Martin Scorsese in that there's improvisation, but it's uh, it's carefully planned because mm. um, some of that dialogue, some of the dialogue, it, you can just tell it comes out of improvisation. It's just, it's, it, it just can't be scripted that way. Um, and it sounds, and it sounds authentic and real. And some of the people in the scenes, there's a couple of scenes where they're at like crime scenes and stuff like that. Some of the people in those scenes are the technical advisors um, to the movie that Michael Mann knew from the LAPD. I think it was one of the gosh, somebody pretty high up in the LAPD in prep for the movie. Um, I, I, the guys in some of the background stuff on the, like the documentary and some of the background things on heat that he said, Michael Mann was on so many ride alongs with him that he finally gave him a gun because he considered, because <laughs> he considered him basically like a partner that they responded to so many calls that he, he gave wow. him a weapon uh, because they were, were responding to different things. And um, I think uh, maybe with that, I would kind of transition to uh, one of the last big things I wanted to talk about was uh, the prep for the movie. And that being one of them is that Michael Mann's been fascinated by this topic uh, for for a long long time, like I said, he's um, he's known many people in both the Chicago and the LAPD. Uh, he's done many ride-alongs. Many of the people that he knows uh, were either technical advisors or actually in scenes in the movie in both Thief and Heat. He uh, he even did a, a prep film before Heat. I think it was 1989. If you if you really want to look, you can go on YouTube. Um, he did a TV movie called L.A. Takedown, and it was basically um, a, a TV movie length, TV budget, heat, including the diner scene, the back and forth. is The dialogue is pretty close. It's in the TV movie L.A. Takedown. Um, I've never watched it from beginning to end. I don't know if it's actually good or not, but he said it was just really a way to to play around with the with, with the material. So where some people might do like say like a test film, 
Michael Mann went out and did an entire TV movie based on the same material just so that he could play around with it uh, and, and start to and start to prep for it. So by the time he did Heat, he had already done Thief, which he also did a lot of research for, and he had done a lot of work with the with the LAPD. And like I said, was on um, very friendly terms with some of them, including he, he knew, like I said, he knew different people in both Chicago PD and LAPD who wanted to be actors and were kind of willing to, <laughs> uh, wanted to get out and, and were more than willing to kind of, um, uh, assist him with some of the stuff. Um, so the, the amount, like I said, the amount of knowledge that he had just head knowledge about this kind of stuff was, was incredible. And he used those contacts to train his actors now i feel like some context is necessary because today people expect actors to do a lot you know you look at something like john wick and you expect that keanu reeves has done jujitsu and firearms training and that you can film it that way uh back in the back in the early 90s it wasn't necessarily expected to do that level of preparation for for a movie and Michael Mann put his actors through some very rigorous training through his contacts. He had ex British SAS come in to train the Robert De Niro crew with live rounds. And he basically had them out on a range, basically kind of stuff as an ex military person, they got to do stuff that I would be envious of. I, there, some of what, their prep work it remains in some of the back uh, behind the scenes documentary stuff. I saw what they got to do. I was like, I didn't get to do that. I didn't even <laughs> get to do that when I, when I was in. Um, and they were incredible shots. There's a, there's some footage of Robert De Niro out on the range where he's like moving from place to place and having to knock down these little targets. He's hitting some shots with, with this is live rounds. He's hitting some shots with a pistol that would be, you know, not saying he's going to like win a competition, but uh, he would do very well in the military making <laughs> making those shots. There's guys that would probably not make some of the shots um, that he was making. And Michael Mann was a very big believer in that. The more you train your actors offset, the more they'll naturally bring to it when they show up uh, on set. So it's not just so that you can get better shots with it. It's that he wants them to feel like they can actually do the things that they're going to do. So they did real bank heist um, kind of prep work. They uh, they had their advisors go with them and basically say, you know, pretend like they were casing a bank and we want you to go in and and not appear on any of the security cameras and stuff like that. So the I guess the actors went around, they went to different banks and pretended like they were trying to get loan information and stuff like that. And they were given tasks to come back with certain information. And so they, they were given like little missions. They were out there doing um, live fire training. And you can see it pay off. One, there's the famous shot, of course, where Val Kilmer is in the middle of the of the shootout scene, and the camera stays on him, and he's firing in two different directions, and he goes to re and he goes to reload, and that is that is a well done reload. Like if I want to get really really nitpicky, like probably at a level that like I myself wouldn't <laughs> think to, to reload, like about his technique and stuff like that, and how he's it, it's very very good. And obviously it allows more fluidity uh, in the action because the camera just stays on him as he's shooting both directions. And it just seamlessly 
pans down with him to see him do the full reload and then boom, immediately back to firing. And it does a couple things. One, it allows for more impressive and sort of fluid shots. You have less static shots, less editing that you have to do when you mm-hmm. can keep it on like that. But it also helps establish something. When, when you see a character reload like that, because the big problem always in action movies is, gosh, they've been firing for like 20 minutes. Doesn't anybody <laughs> ever have to reload in this movie? But you don't want to show... Screw it. <laughs> yeah, but you don't want to show like 20 minutes of people constantly reloading. You show it once and you show the skill level that they have and how fast they can reload. It kind of takes tear, tear of that problem. Because then when you cut back to and they're constantly firing, you've already established how fast that they, you know, that the characters can reload and you buy it. Like we talked about this at the very beginning of this podcast that you forget you're looking at actors. You re- they're, you're just yeah. looking at the character. Of course they can do that. Of course they can do this. And it helps you buy into um, the entire scene. But there's one scene in particular that Michael Mann pointed out. It's a scene in the restaurant where they're trying to get Widow Wang, uh, Wangro. And uh, he's he's trying to convince Robert De Niro. He's like, you know, he was making a move. I had to get it on. I had to get it on. And Robert De Niro takes his head and bounces it <laughs> off the table. And Tom Sizemore, um, there's, a, there's a guy at the other table. And the guy looks up because he hears the guy's you know, head slam off the yeah. table. And he gives a look. And Ty, Tom Sizemore goes and just gives him this, like, just lethal look. Like, this is none of your business. <laughs> mind your own and business. I love mind your own it, business. Yeah. The guy looks away. And Michael Mann described that moment as he said, that look has everything to do with what you put the actors through. Because when they get on set, they're not acting anymore. They believe that they are that person that could do that. Like, if you're going to be a problem, I could walk right over there and take care of you. And that it has everything to do with the prep work that you did for it. And and I actually believe that. Because I haven't watched a couple of Michael Mann movies where you can just see how well some of that is acted. I would say that's probably a good point for other directors to take the time to invest to train actors in it um because if they believe it going onto the set it manifests itself um in their performance that they they know that they really do know how to reload that fast they know that they can actually make that shot they know that they really you know can do jujitsu you know like i said you watch something like um you know john wick and i think both um the camera work in it and keanu reese's performance are uh, to a certain extent, uh, based on the fact that he knows he can that he can do that because he puts so much prep work uh, into it. So I feel like Heat was one of the early precursor movies that put an emphasis on that you can't just cheat with a stuntman or an actor or an angle. Um, you can't do what they did in the Taken series where you can <laughs> edit it, edit it to death to get him to get over that fence by using you know, death by a thousand cuts. Yes. Oh, so, and yeah. I would fully believe that based on based on watching Heat. And that's why I wanted you to take point on this because you you know a lot about uh, behind the scenes stuff. This is this is kind of like the movie that bonds us in a way. And I, I I must like seeing just how meticulous, methodical, how many test films he's basically done, and I can only imagine how many sleepless nights he spent on the script just getting it, you know primed and ready for for finally getting that moment out um to to shoot this thing this this passion project for years maybe you've seen some of this insight why what made him so fascinated with this world did he ever mention anything of that um gosh 
there's something that that did and i'm gonna forget because he had this fascination like i said prior to making uh the movie thief and it was either that he knew police officers i think he knew some police officers i think that it might have started that he met with police officers because there were ones that were trying to break into the business and he ended up meeting with them that way and his fascination with it started uh then just kind of the the world that they that they have to live in and then like i said the whole the whole dichotomy of um that the the criminal is in some ways is the other half of the cop and that the two of them kind of make one person because some of the the technical advisors on the behind the scenes talk about his fascination um and it, so it's not just coming from michael mann they're like yes he's he's been talking about this fascination for like many years and that he would ask them many many questions um and he really went to some extreme lengths. I realized I remembered another thing that in prep for the movie, he had his LAPD friends stage some fake interrogations with the actors as well. Cause he wanted wow. them to know like what that felt like. And he had them both do it and then be a part of it. And like I said, some of it is stuff that does not even directly correlate to a scene in the movie, but it's stuff that he simply wanted them to to go through to to understand that world and like i said he yeah and he i said he went on many ride-alongs with with one of his technical uh advisor and you can just kind of hear it in the way that michael mann talks when he's describing it he you know when someone's excited they kind of get that almost like the kind of boyish quality like he's sort of you know talking like like an adult and he starts talking about his ride-alongs like you know and we're going on a ride-along maybe it was a robbery or a homicide or something like that and i'd have to get my gun and it's kind of like almost like boyish excitement comes out of him uh a little bit and you can just tell that uh for whatever reason he was he was fascinated with all the small details of that world and not just being a cop he was very interested in uh, the entirety of it. So like the, the prison system, how that worked, what happens to wives when they're, when their husbands go to prison. Um, you could see in the interviews that he was very attentive to the language that, that they use. You know, we talked about the term like gladiator academies. You can see in some of the behind the scenes stuff that he, uh, he was using different vernacular that was very particular to either like uh, slang from that world or, or something that you know, that you were interested in the subject and it's it's the attention to detail. It's his fascination with the with the details that ultimately sell. I think the movie Heat because many of the scenes in the movie, the non action scenes, we talk about the scene where he's just talking to his wife or stuff with the kids. Most of it comes from something real. There's a there's a basis for it. There's a story he knows or something that one of the LAPD people told him. There's one of the interviews he did with the prisons. There's one of the, you know, kind of fake interrogations. It all came from something that has a basis in reality, which is something that you realize is missing in a lot of movies. And there, there's a number of movies I see that are um say military or police related and, you know, it's good enough. You can kind of get by, but I can tell it's someone who they had a technical advisor on set. So like some of the technical stuff is, you know, it's correct. It's not wrong, but it just sounds like, it sounds like a movie person created the scene and said, oh, Hey, make sure this doesn't sound wrong, you know? And they like inserted some things into it to kind of bring it up, but it didn't start at that level. Heat to me is you can tell that all the scenes and all the dialogue and all the details that the starting point is someone that was fascinated with the details and wanted it in the movie. 
And that, that's a good way to put it. And also a, a good way to also um, wrap this one because we can always go on and on and on and always talk about some other aspects of things. <laughs> <clears throat> but it's, it's that that you say, like, um, I forget. I, it, it's, I'm kind of losing it right now because uh, I do see videos of, like uh, professionals reacting to films that cover their profession. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you could tell they set up the scene like this, but they wanted it to look cool. So they, they wanted this element added in there because it's a Hollywood scene. It's not authentic because if it looked authentic, it would look boring. It's not heat. And like one of the characters in heat says, and you kind of touched it already. I don't have to, I don't have to sell this stuff. This stuff sells itself. Yes. <laughs> heat. Heat is one of those things you got you got to experience for yourself. And the thing is, this is why I try to stay away from it if it's plain. If it's plain, I'm sitting down. Those three hours are gone. Yes. Because as soon as <laughs> as soon as Robert's coming down that escalator, it's like, oh, because <laughs> you know it's coming, and it's uh, you just you along for one hell of a ride. Um, it's a tour de force, a masterpiece, and I guess that's why I I never. It wasn't until you and I bantered about it just so many times. We literally talk about it. It's it's like our greetings and our farewells. He is one of them too. Like it, those are the three things that we all, you and I, will say hi, we'll say bye, we'll talk. He, that, it's a stand up. We're <laughs> going to talk it. It's we're just not going to shut up about it. And it, that's why I say it's it's a film that, that bonds us. And as you as an ex military, like just from those like all of those details, me from the streets, you to. That, that technical points when it comes to like what looks like military training for these individuals, everything is connected. Everything is studied. Everything is, is prepped and it shows. And the thing is anybody could see it and just enjoy it for a film. Mm-hmm. But it's us that have like more uh, cinema junkies or, or film aficionados that can study it and then tell you this is what makes it great. It's not a, a freaking Marvel movie. Cookie cutter, special effects, you know what to expect. This is one of those things like, holy smokes, look at all that prep that went into this. What, what it took Marvel Studios slash Disney to churn out in 15 years to make all these movies took one guy to do just one and did it right. And I'll take heat over all this CGI nonsense that we're getting now. And that's the only credit really that I can give to the Batman that even though I don't, I don't give it the high praise that some other non Batman fans give it like, you guys aren't really fans. Um, <laughs> what I do give to it is that it bucked the trend of the big uh, budget superhero movies in that it did not end on a giant world ending sky beam alien army invasion and everybody having to come together and do something. Nope. Something considerably smaller more intimate and the batch is being unleashed because he knows he had to go beast mode to save innocence. And like, that is cool. You, and honestly, Matt Reeves knew how to give Batman an entrance, which is how, how uh, Michael Mann knew how to give all of his characters, essentially an entrance. And like everyone has like, that's their intro. To, to everyone, as small or as big as it is, larger like characters or whatever, it didn't matter. It's just, it was it was authentic and true. And it's a timeless classic, absolutely. To which I kept asking myself, do I really know what my favorite films of all time are? 
if I cannot shut up about this one. Because uh, I always said, Nolan's my guy. And if I were to pick a, a movie, it's Interstellar, hands down. No one's going to challenge it. Same length as as Heat, by the way. Yes. Um, <clears throat> that one I have a personal connection mostly because it's uh, a, almost every element that I love about it. But if I were to pick Interstellar versus Heat, I'm going to pick Heat. Because Heat, I cannot find a flaw. And for all the love that I have again, uh, for, for, for Chris, I'm as harsh as critic. And that number one <laughs> criticism is in Interstellar too. So that I can't understand what they're saying. I have to use the subtitles. No complaints about Heat. It is a perfect movie, a masterpiece, and everybody has to watch it at some point. It's a must see. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dude, I, I think, I think we, we wrapped it for this one, but uh, I think I'm going to bring you on for uh, my local broker reacts to the the change from LA when it was filmed to then a little <laughs> bit after and what it looks like today. So I'll keep you posted on that one. But that's going to be a wrap for this one. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining Travis and I on this latest episode of the Andres Segovia Show. Technically, well, not, not I'm sorry. The Andres Segovia Show presents the Critic Corner uh, because I just remembered I was supposed to have my coffee, but I drank it right before we started filming. That's why I have a Celsius <laughs> on hand, which is still caffeine, so I guess that counts. <laughs> but uh, right. I got my mug here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the co-star was there. Uh, so that's where we'll leave it. Thank you so very much, and we'll see you guys in the next one.